Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we will be discussing the Johnny Depp Amber Heard court case. So I'm going to give a pretty big trigger warning and content warning here at the beginning that if you have any history or experience with domestic violence or sexual assault, then this may not be the episode for you. I'm going to be discussing these topics and statistics about these topics in length throughout the entire episode. So it's not really possible for me to give you uh, a point to skip to because it's just going to be weaved throughout the episode. So if that's something that is tough for you, I'm going to recommend that you skip this episode and come back and join us in the next one. I think it's more important for you to take care of yourself and be kind to yourself and stay away from things that are potentially triggering than it is to have an extra download on this episode. So with all that to be said, let's dive in. So if you haven't been on the internet in the last, I don't know, few months, uh, then you may have missed this, but I'm sure everyone else has seen this. But in the U.S., in Virginia, jo- the actor Johnny Depp has sued his ex-wife and actress Amber Heard over a defamation around an op-ed that she wrote in 2018 about uh, her experience with sexual assault, sexual violence, and domestic violence. And he is suing, or he was suing her for defamation, saying that she defamed his character and led to him losing out on movie roles because of this op-ed where she did not name him, uh, but where she mostly spoke about her experience. Amber Heard, in retaliation, countersued Johnny Depp for defamation, saying that his lawyer had been pretty much on a campaign to defame her and so both of these lawsuits were being tried at the same time and it's important to remember that this was a civil case there are no criminal charges associated with this court case and that the court case itself was not about if either person committed an act of domestic violence against the other person and i think that is very important to remember for the entirety of this episode is that this case was not about proving whether one or the other did engage in domestic violence, but was about defamation. And the way in which that gets twisted up is one of, I think, the biggest problems with how this case was talked about on the internet. So the two were suing each other, and the court case was taking place in Virginia because Virginia has different... um, laws around these types of cases one they allow them to be to be streamed or to be uh, filmed 
So that's the reason why we were able to see the entire court case streamed live on the internet. Uh, and I believe the like criteria for bringing a suit about defamation is a little bit different in Virginia, which makes it easier to uh, do, make these cases go forward. Johnny Depp claims that he brought this suit against her in Virginia because that's where the Washington Post is headquartered, and that was who published her op-ed. Um, now, if you ask me, then he should have sued the Washington Post, but I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so on June 1st, this trial came to a close. The jury brought back a verdict in which they found Amber Heard liable for three counts of defamation, and they found Johnny Depp liable for one count of defamation. So essentially, the jury found that both parties engaged in defamation, which if you think about it is like, it cancels out that the defamation, right? Like if Amber Heard is defaming Johnny Depp, but Johnny Depp is defaming Amber Heard, and a negative times a negative is a positive, right? <laughs> Changes the outcome. Um, but again, not a lawyer. I do highly recommend, uh, I will link this in the the show notes, but there is a podcast called Opening Arguments, which did a pretty good breakdown over several episodes of this case. Um, and the one of the hosts is a lawyer. So if you are more interested in the legal side, I highly recommend checking their, their episodes out. Uh, I'll link to their show in the show notes as well as the, the sources page because uh, I learned a lot about the legal side and about why this case took place in Virginia. And when you listen to an actual lawyer talk about this court case, you realize how much of the information that was seen online was like just patently false. I want to read the three sentences out of Amber Heard's op-ed, which Johnny Depp was using as the claims for the defamation. So there are three specific sentences in her op-ed that were the focus of this case. The first one is she wrote, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. Number two, then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. And number three, I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. Those were, that's it. That's the three sentences that were singled out that Johnny Depp was claiming those three sentences ruined his career and made it so that he was not getting movie roles. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> so this is just my civilian opinion, uh, but those seem pretty generic to me. And that in the context of the op-ed where Amber Heard is talking less about the actual abuse, but she's talking about like essentially how she was treated by the culture and by the public. Uh, it, it makes sense that she's talking about this, that she became targeted and targeted in pretty violent ways online for speaking up about her experiences. And that this op-ed was actually not the first time that Amber Heard had spoke about her experiences. It was also not the first time that the public had been aware of any domestic violence between them. Uh, in fact, since 2016, there have been articles being written, photographic evidence of Amber being abused or being showing up with like bruises. She had a restraining order against him and then they got divorced. And there was another court case that took place in the UK, which I'm going to talk about later in the episode, um, that was about the same thing of defamation or libel around a tabloid paper calling Johnny Depp a wife beater. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about that case more in a little bit, but 
I wanted to start us off with this of this is the this is it this is what the court case was about was these three sentences I think for me when I learned what those sentences really were hearing about the trial in the context of what it was actually about uh, also made me see the misinformation that was spread about this case I had never seen these sentences until I read them in an article. It wasn't like people on Twitter, people on the internet were sharing this part of the op-ed. I, I didn't see them until an article came out about uh, the, the final verdict. So before I continue to talk about this case more specifically, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about a few things more generally. So I'm going to be talking first about domestic violence in general. Now, as we move forward through this, I do want to acknowledge that I'm going to be using the term victim and survivor interchangeably, uh, and I'm using that term because I will be talking about domestic violence essentially like throughout the lifespan and throughout the healing process, and some people identify as a victim while they're going through the, the trauma and as a survivor when they've kind of come through it or have some time between them. Some people never identify as a survivor, and some people never identify as a victim. So I'm using both terms interchangeably to kind of honor all of the experiences that people who go through this may have. So let's talk about some facts and statistics about domestic violence or intimate partner violence. The umbrella term of domestic violence or IPV contains a multitude of types of abuse like physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, and financial abuse. I'm going to be primarily talking about physical, sexual, and psychological abuse today because I think those were the most relevant to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case, at least from what I heard about the situation. So some facts about intimate partner violence and physical abuse is that about 10 million Americans are victims of physical violence annually. 20 people are victims of physical violence every minute in the United States. One in three women and one in four men is a victim of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetimes. So I want to stop on that one because it is um, quite equal, or not quite equal, but the gap is not as large between uh, women and men in the U.S. experiencing physical violence in intimate partner relationships. And I bring that up because that's something that uh, came up a lot in the discourse I saw about this case was that like men, no one ever talks about male uh, physical abuse being done to men. And I just want to reiterate that the data does support that men do experience these types of um, abuses and they do at, uh, in some cases, at comparable rates to women. One of the reasons why it may seem like men don't experience this violence as often is that it goes underreported and there, there is not as strong of a like statistical background to talk about how men have been victims of this type of abuse, but it doesn't mean that's never happening to men, and it doesn't mean that organizations aren't trying to collect data about this or trying to help men who are victims of this. 76% um, of intimate partner physical violence victims are female, 24% are male. One in seven women and one in 18 men are severely injured by intimate partners in their lifetimes, and domestic violence accounts for about 15% of all violent crime in the U.S. It's most common among women aged 18 to 24 or 25 to 34 and the majority of this type of abuse especially physical abuse is committed by dating partners rather than spouses so it's more common in just dating relationships rather than being married um, and slightly more than half of intimate partner physical violence is reported to law enforcement so again just reiterating that 
this stuff doesn't get reported. If slightly more than half is getting reported, then that means a little less than half is getting not reported. And that's quite a big chunk of cases that are not reported. And that doesn't even account for then cases that aren't prosecuted or found a conviction for, where wherein the victim doesn't get uh, justice for the violence done to them. And this is, again, just in reference to physical abuse, which can include things like uh, assault, battery, and other types of physical violence done to the uh, partner. And physical abuse and psychological and sexual abuse can often happen simultaneously. Uh, it doesn't mean that just one type of physical, one type of intimate partner violence is happening. Multiple can be occurring at the same time. And we saw that in the stories of the abuse that Amber Heard experienced in her testimony is that she was experiencing multiple types of domestic violence from her partner. And all of these statistics that I am sharing with you are from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is an organization that works to prevent domestic violence, provide resources, and to collect information about domestic violence to better serve that cause. Now, sexual assault and domestic violence intersect quite often as well. Uh, One in five women will be raped in their lifetime. Nearly one in two women and one in five men experience sexual violence, sexual violence victimization other than rape at some point in their lives. So that's any other type of sexual assault. And so that means 50% of women experience victimization and 20% of men experience some type of sexual assault. That's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of people. And again, this doesn't, may not actually reflect the full amount of people, especially men who have been uh, assaulted. And it doesn't reflect the uh, amount of like convictions that is had for sexual violence, right? So people report these things to researchers or other types of like like hotlines, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's getting reported to law enforcement and that there's any consequences for the perpetrator. Um, intimate partner sexual assault is more likely than a stranger or acquaintance assault to cause physical injury, which means that if you experience sexual assault by, at the hand of an intimate partner, they're more likely to do physical damage to your body in the assault, including to areas like genitals or reproductive areas. Um, between 14 and 25% of women are sexually assaulted by intimate partners during their relationship. And between 40 and 45% of women in abusive relationships, they will also be sexually assaulted during the course of their relationship. So that's just showing what I was talking about before, that they come together. Like the physical abuse and the sexual abuse can come together in uh, you know under half of the women who report this. Uh, over half of women raped by an intimate partner were sexually assaulted multiple times by the same partner. And women who are sexually abused by intimate partners report more risk factors for intimate partner homicides than non-sexually abused women. So if sexual abuse is included in the domestic violence that a woman is experiencing, then they're more likely to be at risk to be murdered by their partner. Um, and this is this is a, an area where the statistics really do show an imbalance between men and women is that in cases of domestic violence, women are more likely to be murdered by their male partners than men are to be murdered by their female partners. It's not that it doesn't happen to men, um, but it's more likely that women will be in an abusive relationship that unfortunately ends in their death at the hand of their partner. So I included that. It's scary. It's really like it's a really scary fact or statistic that we have, but I include that to show that this is 
a, a very big issue and that domestic violence should actually be treated as like a public health crisis or a public health issue because it is resulting in not only like bodily injury and sometimes grave bodily injury for victims, but it can result in, in murder and the loss of their lives. And that is a, a huge problem, especially if we're looking at the, the numbers of people who are experiencing uh, this type of abuse. Uh, it's, it's an issue that we as a society should be worried about and should be concerned about. And I don't know if cases like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard do a good job of highlighting this reality, that this is not a joke, whoever is doing the abuse, that it's, it's not something to be made into memes and to be joked about on the internet or interpersonally, but it is something to be taken very seriously because the consequences can be as grave as death. And I know that this probably isn't a very fun episode. Um... I, you know, I, I have a hard time finding a way to make it fun, and I don't think that it should be. Um, so, I, you know, I do want to say that if you're still listening, <laughs> I, I hope that through learning about these situations and, and through these, the, the, the articles and stuff that I'm going to go through on in the, art, in the episode, that it can help you to see how big of an issue this is and that it is an issue that affects us as a society. It's it's not an issue just between two people in a relationship. It's a, a society-wide, regardless of what country you live in, it is a society-wide problem and people need help. The last category of abuse that I'm going to talk about in the context of domestic violence is psychological abuse. And this can include things like humiliating the victim, controlling the victim, withholding information from them, doing something to make the victim feel diminished or embarrassed, isolating them from friends or family, denying them access to money, stalking, demeaning them in public or in private, undermining the victim's confidence or sense of self-worth, and convincing the victim that they are crazy. So all of these things that become part of domestic violence, even including things like threatening to perform physical or sexual abuse, those become part of psychological abuse. So you can see how quickly that becomes wrapped up into a physically abusive or sexually abusive relationship as well. The psychological abuse can follow right behind or even be the precursor to it. Now, 48% of women and 48% of men have experienced at least one psychologically aggressive behavior by an intimate partner. This is also a more common type of abuse because it doesn't leave physical injury on the person, the victim, in the same way. 4 in 10 women and 4 in 10 men have experienced at least one form of coercive control by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And that refers to like controlling what you can do, isolating you uh, from, from other people. 17.9% of women have experienced a situation where an intimate partner tried to keep them from seeing family or friends. And 18% of women have experienced threats of physical harm by an intimate partner. 95% of men who physically abuse their intimate partners also psychologically abuse them. So it's it's like right there, 95%. Women who earn 65% more of their household's income are more likely to be psychologically abused than women who earn less than 65% of their household's income. And this is important to uh, include, I think, because it's this is a type of abuse that can be found across the economic spectrum. So... If in case you're thinking a solution for this is like, well, if, you know, people have access to more resources or we can like get people more educated so they can get better jobs. Uh, and not necessarily that it, it it's still uh, people are at high, especially women are at higher risk of being psychologically abused if they are uh, the primary income earner for their family. 
And these statistics don't necessarily take into account um, other types of relationships like same-sex relationships or relationships where one or both of the partners may identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. So we are missing a piece of the paper, a uh, piece of the picture when we look at these statistics. But I do think that this is a good foundation for the conversation we're going into. Um, but I do want to acknowledge it because Amber Heard identifies as bisexual. And that became something that was, for at least for me and my experience of the coverage of the trial, that became something that felt weaponized against her. Uh, because she had been in a relationship with a woman before she met Johnny Depp. I believe they had been married. And people were using um, experiences that she had had with her wife, uh, or her ex-wife, as evidence that she was a bad person in her relationship with Johnny Depp. And unfortunately, that is often the reality for bisexual people, particularly for bisexual women, who are more likely to be seen as manipulative or trying to trick someone and there is unfortunately still a stigma around people who are attracted to more than one gender in this culture that they're somehow like faking or trying to like I I, I don't even I don't even know (laughs) how this comes up but just like like trying to manipulate people by being attracted to more than one type of gender And I saw that come out a lot with Amber Heard, but I didn't see it being named as much. And it is Pride Month, so I thought that that was something important for me to at least put a pin in and notice and bring to your attention that this um, part of Amber Heard's identity is getting wrapped up into people's perceptions of her. And that if she was not bisexual, or even if she was not openly bisexual, would so much of people's opinions of her be what they are today? And I have to say, in my opinion, I think that people would still have really bad opinions of her, but I think they might be a little less intense without the biphobia that's been baked into the coverage of this trial. So we've we've now heard some statistics about domestic violence, and I think now is a good time to talk about the idea of a perfect victim and how that plays a role in the conversations we have as a culture about domestic violence. And this, I did see this conversation coming up a lot on on the internet after the trial, the verdict came out, is that this idea of the perfect victim is that we want to see victims of crimes, particularly violent crimes like murder or physical abuse. We want to see them in a light that says, they didn't deserve any of this, and therefore their treatment is tragic. If any of my listeners are familiar with the true crime genre, you may have heard this referred to the ideas like the less dead and the most dead. The most dead is typically a young, white, blonde, conventionally attractive woman. That is the type of victim that people care the most about, get, get the most attention on the news, they get the most podcasts about them. They, their cases get the most attention by law enforcement, and they often are seen as pure victims in that they didn't do anything to provoke the crime done to them. Uh, there was no role they played in what have happened to them, and anyone who suggests otherwise is to be criticized or corrected. And I have to say that I think the idea that someone who has been a victim of a crime, that 
we shouldn't engage in did they deserve it or not. I think that is a better way to go forward than to engage in these conversations about who deserved what being done to them. I What I think is wrong is the idea that only certain people, quote unquote, didn't deserve their crime. Now, the opposite of most dead is least dead. And at least in the true crime world, this is referred to as mostly uh, black or African-American women, often trans women, who engage in sex work, whether it's survival sex work or, or not. And those are the type of cases that get ignored, uh, don't get any media attention, don't get podcasts made about them, and get barely any law enforcement attention, if at all. A good example of this is if you've ever heard of the case of the Grim Sleeper. He was a serial killer in the Los Angeles area who killed uh, mostly women who engaged in sex work on the streets of pretty tough areas in Los Angeles. And he killed a lot of people, a lot of women, before the police force even started to investigate this. And there were people in the community who were saying, we know that something is happening to our people, to our neighbors, our, our community members. Something is happening to them. They're being killed. And law enforcement didn't care and didn't invest resources. And the media didn't invest stories in these deaths because nobody cared because they were less they were least dead less dead uh they were not perfect victims they were deemed to be deserving of their murder because they had jobs like sex work or had substance use issues and just like we talked about in the dope sick episode about opioid use um that's not a, a moral failing right substance use sex work isn't a moral failing either it's not uh something that makes someone deserving of being murdered or assaulted. Uh, it's a means of moving through the economic system that requires us to have money to get access to things like housing and food. So in this case, uh, with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, I saw a lot of conversations about, well, Amber behaved in ways that were messy or she was violent back. And that makes her justified in the assault and abuse that she endured. And a lot of the things that she's talked about include psychological abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. And somehow her also being aggress psychologically aggressive to her partner has made it seem justified that she's had physical abuse and sexual violence done to her. And the reality is, is that what people who experience abuse have to do to survive uh, don't always look like appropriate behavior to those of us on the outside. And if you have been the victim of multiple years of sexual and physical abuse, the way that you respond to that isn't going to be to sit down and have a polite conversation and, and apologize for if you yelled at the person who's abusing you. You People who live through trauma like that develop what we would call maladaptive coping skills. And those behaviors that in the moment work, they protect you, they get you out of a dangerous situation, or they make sure that you survive through it. But when you take them out of the traumatic situation and put them into the regular world, they don't work so well. You get into trouble, you ruin relationships, people don't want to be around you because you have maladaptive coping skills. But the thing is, is those coping skills did their job. They got you to where you are today. They helped you to become a survivor and not just a victim. And so to use 
this idea of a perfect victim and to say that, well, because Amber Heard did X, Y, and Z, then she deserves it all is a fundamental misunderstanding of how trauma works and how abuse works. This isn't to say that um, anyone who has a maladaptive coping skill can't take responsibility for their action, or anyone who's been through a trauma doesn't have to take responsibility responsibility for their actions. It's just they're you know reacting to the way that, that they were in a trauma. We we're adults. Adults still have to take responsibility for the things that they do, but it gives us a better understanding and allows us to hold a more empathetic position to the person when we understand where their behaviors come from. And one thing that was definitely missing from the conversation around this court case was empathy. Now, Johnny Depp was getting a lot of sympathy and empathy from his fans, but I didn't see a whole lot of it for Amber. And I think in a case like this, which is incredibly complicated and involves a lot of private personal moments that you and I were not a part of, both people need empathy. And to see this as a case of Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, where there's a winner and there's a loser, is a fundamental misunderstanding of how relationships work, of how domestic violence works, and of how survivors work. And to use evidence, so, so-called evidence of Amber screaming at him as justification for her being hit and punched and sexually assaulted, that's a, that's a lose-lose game right there. And if we can't have empathy for a survivor of violence who is incredibly public, is in popular movies, and has been plastered over every newspaper for the last few months, if we can't have empathy for that person, how are everyday survivors supposed to feel? Are they going to feel like telling their peers, telling their friends, their family about their abuse is going to be taken well? No, we've set a public society-wide example that if you are a person in a relationship who is experiencing abuse and you do anything that's frowned upon or seen to be a bad behavior, uh, you're not going to be believed. It just totally wipes out uh, any credibility that you have as a victim and any uh, opportunity for empathy for survivors. And I think that's what, what is the most dangerous precedent about this case. I understand that there's dangerous legal precedent that was set by the actual case, which, again, lawyers are there to talk about, and there's some great ones doing it. But I think the cultural precedent and the, the, the precedent that will seep into your lives, right, into our lives, our everyday lives, is the continued creation of the perfect victim idea, that if a victim or survivor of this type of abuse acts in any way, shape, or form outside the acceptable box of what a victim is allowed to do, then their entire experience is going to be dismissed. And that is so dangerous. That prevents people from accessing resources. That prevents people from getting help, from reporting to law enforcement for there to be consequences for abuse done to them. That ensures that people stay in relationships where they're being abused because they don't know how to get out of it because they can't tell anyone what's going on to them. Because if I tell my friend who retweeted about how Amber Heard is lying and couldn't possibly have experienced these things, and no one's going to believe me when I try to tell them what happened. And that is the biggest takeaway for me from this case, is that this precedent has been set on a national stage. We've already had ex- examples of it. If we want to talk about the case of uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, uh, if we want to talk about any of the Me Too movement coming out, especially about Weinstein in the beginning, 
or uh, women who survived Bill Cosby's assaults. We, we've seen this before, but this is now setting a precedent that uh, a man can get away, a famous man can get away with whatever he wants as long as it seems like the person he did it to deserves it. And so I encourage you to consider what kind of bias do you have towards survivors or victims of this type of abuse? Do you find yourself having those thoughts that this person seems like they were really asking for it, that they really deserve what happened to them because they're bad people? If you find yourself having those thoughts, I encourage you to pause, figure out why you're having those thoughts, where they're coming from, and expose yourself to situations that encourage you to have empathy toward victims, to take the perspective of someone who is living in fear and living through a very traumatic event. And I can guarantee you, well, I can't guarantee you 100%, but I can guess that that will be very helpful in combating those types of thoughts if you can attempt to take the perspective of someone who is being assaulted and abused and slow down your reaction so that you don't go with your first automatic thought that she deserved it or he deserved it or they deserved it. And if that's the only thing you take away from this episode, then I feel like I've done my job. I really do. I think that is one of the most important things to take away from this situation. Now, the other area that I wanted to cover in this episode has to do with misinformation and social media. I know this is a topic that I've talked about in different episodes through throughout the history of the show, but I want to focus in on something specifically um, unique in this case that I haven't talked about in the past, and that's bots. Uh, and I'm using a, a, a wonderful description of bots from an article by Wang et al. that came out in 2018, uh, and they have this very interesting model of how bots spread, de- spread deceptive information. But essentially, a bot is an, a software that lives in the social media environment with humans. Bots can interact uh, with other human users. They can tweet. They can send e- emails. They can send direct messages. Uh, and they even can sometimes use natural-sounding language so that it seems like a, a real person on the other side of it. At this point in the development of bots, um, they still have to be essentially created by a person, um, but are so they're not fully autonomous and that they don't just appear. Uh, they are started by people or by programs that people create, uh, and they begin to grow and spread on platforms like Twitter. And this article focused mostly on Twitter, which is where I saw most of this, but Bot accounts can happen on Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, um, even things like Snapchat. If you've ever gotten those weird spammy Snapchat messages that are like, hey, I just added you and I want you to look at my pictures. Uh, those are bots. They're, there's not a real person behind that message. It's a computer program that's sending this information out. And one thing that happened a lot of, during this trial was that accounts that were spreading a lot of edited videos or just like fake claims about Amber Heard were bot accounts. They they were not real people behind the accounts. And there are even some articles that I read that found evidence that companies, media companies were spending money to get these bots going to spread this information. And this became like a big moneymaker for people, this case in general. Like a lot of people, their whole 
channels shifted to content just about the, the trial, and often the information that they were spreading was coming from these bot accounts. And this matches on to the model that Wang et al. found or proposed in their article, which essentially suggests that fake news or misinformation is on the web in general. And in the insulated community of Twitter, bots are the first ones to encounter this external fake news, and they begin to spread it within the internal world of Twitter. The bots then spread that account to actual human users, who then spread it between each other. And as they spread it between each other, the nature of the fake news begins to change. The human accounts and the bot accounts continue to share the, the misinformation back and forth, and the, the word they use is contagion. The contagion spreads so that all accounts are essentially infected with this misinformation. But the gateway into the internal environment of Twitter is the bot accounts. And the reason for this is that the bot accounts aren't checking if it's real. They're bots. They're just tweeting things. They're just replying to messages. Like, they're just sending things out there. They're, there's not a person behind it to check it. And the algorithms aren't created to check deceptive information. They're, they're not journalists, right? Or journalist algorithms, which I don't even know is a thing. Then when the bots spread it and it, it's showing up on Twitter, then people, the real human users, begin to see it and think, well, I'm seeing this so much, there must be something to this, and spread it to their own users. But the problem is, is that that, sh that could be an area in which this misinformation is checked, is if instead of retweeting or reposting content from bots, people were able to stop and check the validity of it. Uh, before spreading it, then that could be a way to slow down the contagion, essentially. It's kind of like putting a mask on to stop a pandemic, if you know what I mean. Um, so the, the bots are able to infiltrate the information that real human users are sending to each other and spread this information. And I saw examples of this on Twitter and on Reddit myself. For example, there was a video that was going around of Amber Heard while testifying during the trial. And it looked like she was holding her tissue in a way and like snor sniffing into it to make it look like she was snorting a line of cocaine on the witness stand next to the judge. And I saw this video shared with captions like, can't believe Amber Heard just did coke on the stand. Like she really thinks she can get away with anything. It wasn't just that like, oh, wow, look at this video of someone, like, trying to do drugs on the witness stand. It was the sentiment of, like, she thinks she's above the law. She can do whatever she wants in that courtroom. But the reality was is that that video had been edited and parts of a sequence where she uh, pulled a tissue out of a box had been jumbled up so that it looked like she was holding her hand in an odd way and then putting her, her hand with the tissue up to her nose. And if you stop to think about that for about 13 seconds, you'd realize that it's probably impossible for someone to, one, smuggle cocaine into a courthouse where it's likely that they're searched and there may even be things like drug-sniffing dogs, two, to then bring it with you up onto the witness stand where you know it's being live-streamed in front of millions of people, and then three, to actually get out the cocaine and do it in front of a judge where the witness stand, you're literally right next to the judge and the judge sits up higher than you so they could be looking down to see everything that you're doing. Those three things alone make this impossible for this to happen. 
And if it really was happening, don't you think they would have addressed it in the courtroom and, uh, I don't know, said that was some sort of obstruction of justice or like that, that like Amber would have been charged with something if she was doing an illegal drug on the witness stand in a courtroom? Like, think about that for literally 13 seconds and it falls apart. But when I would see that video, I would look at the comments or the, the replies to the video and I would I would see a few people saying essentially what I just said, that like, this doesn't really make sense if we break it down. But I would see many more people repeating the sentiment of, wow, she's getting away with everything. She thinks she's above the law. She has no respect for anyone. Like, what a horrible person she is. I saw more of that sentiment than I did of the like, this doesn't quite make sense. And so there's an example of this one video that had been poorly edited is now being shared by... 100 accounts at the same time with the same sentiment. That's the bots activity. So if you see something that's coming up over and over and over again and it has the same language applied to it, that's a red flag that it's a bot. It's being shared by all these bot accounts and then you're seeing real human users interacting with it and echoing the sentiment that the bot put out there. That is the example of the contagion spreading of now that a human person has sort of synthesized what the bot has posted, it's now taken on a different light and is being shared to a larger audience of more real human people. Because regardless of what Elon Musk says, there are more real people on Twitter than there are bots. So although the bots introduce this idea to the ecosystem, it is the human users that spread it by not being careful in what they share. And I'm not going to say that I'm perfect and I never fall for this and that I can spot a bot every time. It's difficult, especially some of these bots are quite sophisticated. And as someone who has conducted research online as well, trying to gather participants, bots have ruined some of my research or my colleagues' research as well, in that they flood and give responses to surveys. And at first, it seems exciting that you have like 500 people responded to your survey. And then you start to look at the data and you realize this isn't adding up. This doesn't look like what real people would say. And again, like I've probably said in every single episode of this show, if you're on the internet, you gotta slow down. You gotta take a pause and consider, is this true? Are there things that give me warning signs that this could be a bot? For example, is it the same language of a post I've seen earlier? Is it out of the blue, multiple accounts are posting the same video or the same content? And is there a source to this video or this content? If there's no source, like you can't figure out who originally made it, or who wrote the article, then it's probably not a valid source and a big red flag that it's a bot. And I wonder what this, like pu the, the court of public opinion, would this have been different if these bots hadn't been as prevalent in uh, spreading this type of misinformation? I don't know. I can't say for sure because we, we haven't lived through that. But I think that it is really important for us to consider that the bots did play a big role in this and spread misinformation about a trial that was going on and what else are bots influencing, right? We got to be aware of if a, if bots are doing this about this like celebrity trial, what else are they spreading information about or rather misinformation? And I think one of the ways that bots can kind of get us, get our buy-in psychologically is that they tap into the familiarity effect. And there's a, an effect uh, in, in cognitive science that we found that when you're exposed to something over and over again, we become familiar with the stimulus, you, you start to become more attracted to it or you, you, you start to be more interested in it. That's the reason why the first time you hear a new song on the radio, you might not like it. But 
five days later, you love the song because you've heard it everywhere. It's on every radio station, playing in the gas station, playing in the grocery store, right? It's the, it's the exposure to it, the familiarity with it. It's no longer a new stimulus that's off-putting because it's new. It's now familiar. I think that's the, what happens with bots, and this is my opinion. Bots are able to so prolifically post content because they're not real. They're robots. That's only job is to pump out content. They're able to so prolifically promote and spread content that we become familiarized with it. We see it over and over and over again. And it may be the court, the fact that the first time you see the video of Amber Heard allegedly snorting coke on the witness stand, you're like, whatever, I don't even want to watch this. I don't want to engage with this. This looks weird. You start to see it over and over and over again. And by the end of the third day of you looking through your Twitter, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this. There may be something to this. That's you being overexposed and familiarized with this stimuli. And that's bots can do that ad nauseum because they don't have to sleep or eat. They're not real. And they can pump out content. And the content looks the same. Multiple bots can be posting the same, not only types of content, but the same tone. They can use each other's language. And that makes me nervous because it's, it's hard to combat that effect. It may be that the first time you see the thing, you're able to slow down and, and consider it, but you kind of get worn down over time of seeing this thing over and over and over again. And I've noticed that in myself of like, there's been videos or things that I've seen online that I've skipped because I don't want to see them or I don't know if they're even good information. And I just see them so many times that it's like, fine, I'll just look at it. And it sucks you in. And so I think that I share that so that my listeners, you guys can know that this happens to everyone. Um, but that we also do need to be a little more vigilant about the type of social media content that we consume because it's not just other people out there. There are bots out there that can do a lot of things because again, they're not real and they don't have to take breaks. Now, I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about the UK case and how it was such a different verdict and how I think that misinformation plays a role in that. So in 2018, a few years after Amber Heard and Johnny Depp got divorced, the Sun, which is a British newspaper, it's kind of like a tabloidy uh, publication. They published a story in which, during in the byline of the or the headline of the story, they referred to Johnny Depp as a wife beater, and they were reporting on some of these uh, incidences that had happened between the two of them. So that that article was published in 2018. Johnny Depp sued them, and the court case happened in 2020, so just two years ago. And that took place in the UK because the Sun is located in the UK. And Johnny Depp sued them for libel, saying that there was no evidence that he had ever abused or assaulted his ex-partner, and that it was all part of an elaborate hoax perpetrated by Heard against him. So in this case in the UK, he wasn't suing Amber. He was suing the publication that had printed these things. Uh, and she had not written this article. She was not involved in this article. But she did end up getting involved in the court case because she was called upon to testify. Now, this trial went on for several weeks. It was a similar reaction in the public in that people were showing up outside the court to, like, wave at Johnny, making him signs. There were fans out there who were there to support him. Not a big contingency of Amber Heard fans, but a big contingency of Johnny Depp fans. However... 
the judge in this case and in this case there was no jury it was a judge which is typically how these like civil cases go um that's another reason why the virginia is the state where he uh did this court case is that you have the right to a jury trial in criminal in civil cases in virginia uh which means you get a jury to make the decision not a judge that wasn't happening in this uk case so a judge ruled that in 12 of the 14 cases that johnny depp said he was being lied about by the sun 12 of the 14 were found to be substantiated which means there was suitable evidence for a judge to say that these are not libelous or defamatory statements these are essentially true statements there was so much evidence there is a 126 page uh, judgment that the judge wrote there is so much evidence that Johnny Depp assaulted Amber Heard that the judge did not find the son had propagated any libel about Johnny Depp. To let that, I want you to let that sink in. That this couple had been together for uh, under two years and there was so much evidence that the judge found 12 credible accounts of sexual, or not sexual, but assault, domestic violence perpetrated by Depp against Heard in that short amount of time. That is a lot of evidence. And the judge is just laying out the um, facts of the case. And at the time that this trial was going on, there was not the same focus online about this trial. There were some people, obviously, Johnny Depp fans were gathering at the courthouse to talk, like, to support him. But there wasn't the same sort of fervor around it online, and there weren't uh, the same level of, of bot activity that we saw this time around. The thing that was different about the trial in the U.S. is that it was a jury trial. So a jury of your peers is making the final decision about if defamation occurred or not. And an important thing to note is that the jury was not sequestered. Now, in the U.S., in our criminal justice system, sequestering a jury means that they have to stay typically in a hotel for the duration of the trial. They're not allowed to watch the news, have access to the internet, especially things like social media, and they're kept away from their family and friends who might pass on information that they found out in the public. So to, when you sequester a jury, it means that they're only dealing with the information that they see in the courtroom and not any information that's coming from the outside world. And this is important because in big high-profile cases, the court of public opinion is going on 24-7 while the court case is happening. And so there's lots of opinions and other types of information being shared that the jury could be influenced by. And the jury <laughs> had access to that information in this case. They had access to their personal social media accounts, TikTok, Twitter, Reddit, access to their friends and family. They were watching the news. Uh, they were able to see this like bot spread misinformation. As a mental health professional who found myself being very affected by the public information going around and the public opinions about this case, uh, I can't imagine that this jury was not impacted by that at all. I found myself, even though I stayed, I tried to stay away from the trial, I didn't watch videos when I could avoid it, I tried to unfollow or, you know, mute accounts that were talking about it, but it still kept coming up and 
I gave in and watched some of these videos and read the comments. And it was the com- some of the videos didn't necessarily have like a clear agenda uh or if you just saw the video like in the wild devoid of caption or comments, you wouldn't necessarily know what it was trying to say. Um but the comments where people were responding and their tone and the the vitriol that I saw, like that was what was so influential to me and made it so difficult to engage with this content. And you you can't tell me, uh, I'm going to be stubborn in this opinion that I have, you can't tell me that the jury didn't see those comments and didn't interact with those types of opinions and that that didn't carry over through their day. Because I wasn't even involved in the case and I found myself being personally impacted by reading comments and seeing this content online. And so if someone who's so far divorced from this case is being influenced by it, you can't tell me that someone who's sitting there eight hours a day listening to this testimony and these lawyers, that they wouldn't be influenced by it. You, you, you can't convince me of that. And it's part of the nature of like how addictive social media is, the role of like dopamine and how that motivates people to keep spending time on social media. Like all of that stuff is wrapped up in the fact that this jury was not sequestered. And again, I get why they weren't. It was a civil case. It's not common to sequester a jury for these types of cases. It's not required. Um, But it clearly had an impact on the outcome of the case. And I think that's demonstrated in the fact that they found both parties to be guilty. There's contradictory uh, uh, verdicts there. And we already had an entire court case that in the in a different country in the UK that found evidence that this stuff happened. So it can't be defamation if Amber Heard is talking about something that has actually happened to her that's been substantiated. That is my understanding of the law at the very least. Again, not a lawyer. There are lots of resources for that. But it makes me frustrated to see that this had already been litigated and uh, not only was it being litigated again in a court case, but that we were litigating it online. Every day, someone had to have an opinion. Everybody was an armchair lawyer and everybody was looking for evidence to help Johnny Depp. And not that uh, I care for either one anymore. I, I'm just, I am more familiar with Johnny Depp's work because he's just been in more movies and he's more famous. Uh, but I think that this shouldn't have been televised. This shouldn't have been anywhere online. No one should have seen this. It should have been a boring procedural criminal or civil court case that no one knew was happening. Uh, and the fact that it was live streamed uh, really changed the way that we all interacted with this. And, you know, earlier I was talking about seeing content that was like very neg- edited very negatively toward Amber Heard's perspective but I also saw the opposite where things were very positively edited in Johnny Depp's uh uh perspective I don't know if you saw the videos that were like it'd be like clips of Johnny Depp totally owning this lawyer or you know here's a uh, five times that Johnny Depp made a funny joke in the court and those would be the videos that were going around on Johnny around about Johnny Depp and the contrast between those made him look like what a cool guy. He's doing the best of this. Like, you know, he's being dragged here to do this and he's making the best of it. And he's a cool guy. And Amber Heard was being portrayed as like an actual psychopath who is like terrorizing everyone in the court and acting. Here's the thing, folks. They're both actors. So (laughs) if anyone's acting, it would be both of them. They would both be acting. And the thing is, is you're uh, under oath. Okay. So they're not acting because they're under oath 
and they're being compelled to tell the truth. Yes, people still lie all the time and perjury and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I'm not interested in that argument. What I'm saying is that the misinformation, the actual facts of the case, all got jumbled up. And it seems like when you interact with people who followed this online, they don't know what really happened. And we're having a hard time having a conversation about it because people don't know what really happened and are citing misinformation and citing videos and articles that came from bot accounts. And so I would encourage you that if you want to engage in a dialogue about this, this case, that you seek out information that's written by real human people, first of all, that hasn't been edited by some guy who has a YouTube channel that only posts epic fail videos, and that you, again, slow down and consider what's going on before reacting or reposting. We can all make changes to the way we act online so that we stop spreading the contagion of misinformation and fake news. It's just not necessary. And I know this may seem like a silly thing that like it was just this court case between these two celebrities, but I hope that I've made it clear through the information I've shared about domestic violence, the perfect victim myth and uh, misinformation and bots, um, that this is a serious topic and it does change the way that you and I, everyday people, interact with each other about these topics. And if we're going to have any pushback against this like overwhelming tide of misogyny, pathologizing, uh, misinformation, if we're going to have any influence on that, we've got to slow down and actually deal with reality. Not get sucked into YouTube rabbit holes or... Uh, misinformation threads on Twitter, and we have to be aware of our parasocial relationships. I'm tying it back to last week's episode. Our parasocial relationships fuel the misinformation that we spread on social media. Johnny Depp doesn't know who you are. Amber Heard doesn't know who you are. When you tweet about these things, uh, they're not receiving it. You didn't, no one helped the court case. You know, if if you know someone or you were some of those people who were retweeting videos being like, Johnny, we found evidence that she's lying, like use this in your case. You didn't have an influence on the case. You may have had an, had an influence in the fact that you spread misinformation that infected the jury and you were part of the contagion. But the, your parasocial relationship with these celebrities, they don't know about us. They don't know who we are. They're not responding to us as individuals. And Johnny Depp in my humble opinion, is manipulating that parasocial relationship. And he knows that if he can throw a few bones out to the fans that wait outside the courtroom or on the internet or, you know, wherever he does his thing, he knows that that keeps you on his side, that it keeps you supporting him and spreading information that helps him. Misinformation and disinformation. He, he's using that. Whether he's conscious of that or not, I don't know, I'm not going to speculate on the man's motives. But it's it's being used to fuel support of him, and it's being weaponized against a woman who has already been abused. And we have evidence of that, and I feel confident in saying that Amber Heard is a victim and a survivor of domestic violence because there's evidence that it happened to her. And so if there's anything we can learn from parasocial relationships, from this role of technology and social media in exacerbating them, it's that you got to break up with your parasocial partners. <laughs> you got to end those parasocial friendships. They're not serving you well at this point. And if you're finding yourself in a position where you're more consumed with supporting people you have parasocial relationships with than people you have actual interpersonal relationships with, 
then I'm, I'm going to say that that's a red flag. And I highly recommend you get support. You get support from a professional. Please visit the resource page on my website if you need a, a, a place to start with that. And, and know that you're not the only one. There are a lot of people who may be struggling with this. Uh, but it is a warning sign that we got to turn this around. We got to do something different. Because uh, this relationship will never be reciprocated. It's parasocial. It's not truly social. It's it's a, a, a shell of true social interaction. And so I'm going to end this this very difficult episode with, with this plea. A plea that I've made before. Slow down and ask for help. If you find yourself getting wrapped up in the lives of celebrities in a way that is unhealthy or that is limiting your ability to engage with other people, get help. If you find that you're constantly being berated online with information that doesn't seem right or that seems hell-bent on working you up into some sort of emotional reaction, log off. Change the accounts that you follow and get help with determining what is serving you and what is not. And if you've listened all the way through this episode and through this this very heavy topic with me, uh, I want to say thank you and ask you to take care of yourself in whatever way that means, whether that means stepping away from the podcast for a minute, uh, taking yourself outside, eating a piece of chocolate, whatever it means to take care of yourself, I ask that you consider doing that now um, because this is a lot to hold. It was a lot for me to hold preparing for this episode. Uh, and I do feel some relief in getting it out. Um, but I also know that you're going to be holding it with you after you listen as well. Um, so I, I, I ask you to, to take care of yourself. And I think we can model for each other what it looks like to take care of ourselves and, and step back from these kind of difficult topics. And I know that this isn't going to be the end of the conversation around even this trial in particular because they're heading into an appeals process. There's going to be more... Uh, content online that is similar to what we saw about Amber Heard. There's going to be a misogynistic, hateful content that's being spread. And so continue to take care of yourself, folks, as you go forward on the internet. It's a scary place out there. um, But I think that if we band together and we slow down, uh, we can, you know, at least find a little tide pool of safety (laughs) in in the sea of, of the internet. Um, And so with that, I'm going to wrap it up here. I do appreciate you making it all the way to the end with me. Um, And with that, I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.